Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. This episode of the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast Series is brought to you by GS3 Quality Seed, the distributor of high-quality, trusted cover crop seed brands like Nitro Radish, KB Annual Ryegrass, Super B Facelia, and TNT Vetch. You can learn more about these cover crops and numerous other species at tiltpro.com, as well as find the seed dealer nearest you. That's tiltpro.com. Today, I'd like to introduce Jamie Patton, Senior Outreach Specialist with the Nutrient and Pest Management with the University of Wisconsin. Jamie will be discussing soil health going into winter. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Thank you. Happy to be here. To get us started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a senior outreach specialist. So what that means is I work for the University of Wisconsin and I'm stationed up in Northeast Wisconsin. So my job is to bring the information from the university down to the farm level and to figure out how to apply that information in real world situations. So I have the best of both worlds. I get to work with the the latest research that's going on out there in the university system, as well as working with these very progressive and really excited farmers down here, putting these practices into play. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and and jump right into today's topic. Um, What are some important hallmarks of soil health that growers should evaluate as winter approaches? So when we think about evaluating soil health after the harvest season, there's lots of things that we can observe with our senses that'll give us a feel for how that soil functioned, not only during the growing season, but how it is functioning now. So I always like to first assess how much cover do we have out there after harvest? Is it dead or is it alive? How much coverage do I have? And is this residue going to help to control raindrop impact as well as erosion? So gauging the amount of residue out there as well as the growth of my cover crop species. So we live up in northern Wisconsin. And so looking at those species that I might have planted after harvest, how are they performing at, at this point in the growing season after harvest? Are there species that are doing better? Are there species that are doing worse? And I can use this information then to narrow down uh, my potential cover crop mixes for the future. I also like to look for signs of erosion and our surface crusting. So am I getting the amount of residue out there to preserve that soil and keep it into place? Um, Did that erosion happen after harvest or before harvest so that I can look at how my cropping system is uh, impacting soil health as well as signs of compaction and rutting. So after harvest season, we take a lot of corn silage off of fields up here. This growing season so far has been great. It's been dry soil conditions. We're not seeing the rutting that we saw a couple years ago, but have I created compaction during my harvest operations and what am I going to need to do over in the future to alleviate some of that compaction and yield loss that I'm seeing, as well as looking for signs of biology, not only current biology. So are my earthworms still active? Do I see my ground beetles? Do I see all sorts of life out there in the soil? And do I see evidence of that during the growing season? Do I see those middens where the earthworms would have been when the soil was warmer? So lots of things that we can do when we're looking at soil health after Uh, after harvest and as winter approaches. Again, to me, the key is here, get out a shovel and and go look, go see what's going on. Great. So is soil testing a a valuable tool that growers should be investing in? that's That's a great question. So I work for the Nutrient and Pest Management Program. So of course, when we talk routine soil fertility sampling, the answer is always yes. So how do we 
how do we better manage those nutrients in our crop rotations? We need to know what's in our soil and how to supplement that if need be. So routine soil fertility sampling is, is always important. I think you're probably asking me about soil health testing. And so this is a, a little more complicated question because this is fairly new to the scientific realm. We've been doing routine soil fertility testing for, for decades now. Soil health testing is, is maybe in the last decade or so. And so figuring out how to interpret and to apply the information that we get from these soil health tests is, is a little complicated based upon where we're at in the country, what are our soil types, what are our climate types. But when we look at soil testing, soil health testing, a lot of producers are really interested in gauging the impact of their management changes on a single field over time. And this is where soil health testing may come into play. So looking at the not only just the, the raw numbers, but how those numbers change given our management practices can help producers refine their management over time to achieve their cover cropping, to achieve their soil health, to achieve their productivity goals. And so the key with soil health sampling is, is knowing what you data you want to get from it so that you can approve, you can um choose the appropriate test to get that information. What is the best time of year for growers to conduct that oil health testing? Is fall a good time or should it be right after harvest or, or what is the best timing? So oftentimes when we think about soil health testing, uh, Purdue has a very nice publication um, entitled, let's see, how to understand and interpret soil health tests. And so in that publication, they recommend that we actually take our soil health tests, depending upon what they are, particularly if they include biological measurements, actually in the spring. So we're looking at after we've taken that cover crop off or we terminated that cover crop, we have that cash crop growing. The Purdue is recommending that we take our soil health tests from about V3 to V6 stage of corn. So early enough that that cover crop is starting to break down, I can still get into the field and collect that soil test. But late enough in the season that, that my microbiology has started to, to really take hold, the soil is warming up and they're starting to become active. So, so depending upon the soil test that we want to run, sometimes fall may be the appropriate time to do that. But if we're looking at those biological measurements in particular, the recommendation oftentimes is that we wait till spring to gauge those when the microbiology is really ramping up and is active in the soil system. So a little bit ago, you were talking about different types of soil fertility testing. We hear a lot about the Haney soil test, but are there other soil tests that growers should be conducting? And, and if so, what are they? There are right now, there are so many different soil health tests coming to market. So the one that oftentimes people are, are familiar with are the Haney test, as well as the, the Cornell's comprehensive assessment of soil health. So two different kinds of tests. Haney is oftentimes focusing more on that nutrient status, water extractable nutrients, um, the, the uh, Haney extractant, extractable nutrients, where the Cornell comprehensive assessment is looking at biological, chemical, and physical properties. There's also, as commercial labs start to develop some new soil health practices. We can add on to some of these analyses, maybe a CO2 burst test to see how active the microbiology is in our soil, looking at phospholipid fatty acid tests, trying to identify who is out there in our soil, um, as well as, as some potentially mineralized carbon and nitrogen and aggregate stability. So right now there is, there's a wide gamut of soil health tests that are available. So the key is identifying what information we want to collect in our field and tailoring that test or that testing package to garner the information that we want. Their soil health tests are a little bit different than soil fertility tests in that 
oftentimes when we take a, a routine soil fertility test for, um, for example, for nutrient management planning in the state of Wisconsin, I'm going out, I'm dividing that area into a five acre chunk, and I am taking 10 to 20 um, subsamples within that area, combining them together to get an average for that five acre area. When we look at Purdue and others who are recommending when we do soil health tests, what we want to do is, is pick a sampling spot. So we know soils are highly variable across our landscape. So in order to gauge soil health in a particular field from year to year, we want to pick a generalized sampling spot as a sampling time of the year, and then sample that area consistently during the time of the year. And again, the same spot, choosing it, to, choosing a particular lab, sending the soil, always sending the soil samples to that lab and running the same tests. And what this does is it gives us a running average of what these test results are, are coming back as, and so that we can gauge how our management is, is impacting those particular soil health matrix matrices. So it's very important. And it's a little bit different than what our normal soil fertility sampling would be. This is getting down and dirty and very specific on gauging changes over time, relative changes over time. And that's going to be key because as we are so new in soil health testing, we don't have a lot of these tests calibrated for particular areas of the country. So use, you almost have to use yourself as your own calibration and, and only look at relative numbers in that same field over time to gauge to gauge how your management practices are impacting the soil health indices. So when a grower receives their results from any of these soil fertility or soil health tests, what data should they be looking at and, and what data is most important to evaluate? So when we look at what data is most important, this is a this is a kind of a tricky question here. So the data that's most important is the data that's important to you. And so what questions are you trying to ask? So, you know, are, are you trying to gauge it, are, am I increasing soil organic matter levels over time in this field with my management practices? If we're interested in a question such as that, then I need to be looking at potentially a total soil organic matter, total soil organic carbon. I might be looking at some of the more active measures of, of carbon, such as, as pox carbon or permangate oxidizable carbon, potentially mineralizable carbon. So what indice is important on a particular test is the indice that answers your questions in regards to how your management is impacting soil health. So it's, um, it's a very broad answer to a very specific question. So That's the answer, okay. <laughs> the answer is going to be different for every single producer. Right. So kind of tying in cover crops now, um, why are cover crop root channels beneficial in the soil and, and what is their purpose and role? So when we look at, at the soil matrix itself, we have we know ideally, you know, we always talk about that ideal soil is 50% solids, 50% poor space. And what happens is, is those, those cover crop root channels help to contribute to that 50% poor space. So it helps to not only build that those areas of the voids where we get water and air exchange, where we get root growth, where we get microbiology interacting with our gaseous and water phases. But those cover crop roots also not only build those pore channels, but they help to maintain those channels over time. And so oftentimes when I get down in a soil pit and we're talking with producers about management, you know, looking at how roots follow old root channels. And so, you know, keeping those conduits um, 
alive and building upon the, the volume of conduits, those old root channels in a soil matrix helps me to get cover crop roots as well as, as cash crop roots down deeper into the soil profile earlier on in the season. And that was key this year in particular in those areas that were suffering from drought. If I could get my roots deep into the soil system, Earlier in the season, there was the potential for me to be able to tap that subsoil moisture and for that crop to maintain itself through those dry conditions. So those root channels are extremely beneficial, not only to improve aeration, but also improve water infiltration, getting water to move into that soil. Um, again, in those areas that were suffering from drought, making sure that every drop of rain that hit the soil surface, hopefully was had the opportunity to move down into the soil profile and recharge that subsoil moisture. And those roots themselves, when we think about why they're beneficial to the soil, we know they also help to initiate the formation of soil aggregates. So usually I'm, I, you can't see me waving my arms. I get really passionate about soil aggregation or the, the um, basically the bringing together sand, silt, and clay grains into those aggregates or peds that then create that pore space around it. So those soil roots, excuse me, those plant roots help to form those aggregates by enmeshing those sand, silt, and clay grains, bringing in the biology to help to produce those glues that create those beautiful aggregates that which then create that beautiful pore space that allow for aeration, infiltration, and crop root growth and cover crop growth. So, so many beneficial things that crop roots can bring to bring to the table when we're talking about soil health. Fantastic. So fighting erosion is one of the primary reasons we hear that growers use cover crops. What qualities in the soil need to be improved in order to help prevent or mitigate erosion? And, and how do cover crops specifically meet some of those soil qualities? Perfect question. So when we think about reducing soil erosion, the way I need to do this, is I need to reduce the amount of water that runs off the soil surface. So I need to get water moving into the soil rather than moving off of the soil. So because if water is moving off of the soil, there's that potential that it will take sediments and nutrients with it. So I need to, in order to reduce erosion, I need to get water to move in. And that's where this previous conversation of getting those aggregates to form. So having those root channels in there to not only create those aggregates, but to create those those flow channels to move water into the soil system. So that can also be done through some of our biology. So for those of us who have, who have night crawlers, and earthworms in our systems, right? Those, those, that biology helps to create that pore space that allows for that water to infiltrate. So all of that, reducing compaction, reducing tillage, increasing organic matter content, anything that increases the amount of pore space in the soil, particularly large pore spaces, pore spaces that are connected so that they, they go somewhere and that water can infiltrate deeper down into the soil profile, all of those are going to help to fight erosion over time. So cover crops can play a huge role in not only helping to create those aggregates and create those pore spaces, but they also create that phys more of a physical um, barrier at the soil surface. So a lot, a lot of us that farm silt loams in particular, we know that if raindrops hit that soil surface, we end up with a lot of surface crusting, right? We get the destruction of those aggregates. We get that formation of crust at the soil surface. So cover crops can help and crops can help by maintaining that residue to intercept that high energy that's coming from that raindrop and allowing that raindrop then to slowly move down towards the soil surface so that those aggregates are maintained. In addition, those cover crops, those crops, those 
residues can slow if, if water does happen to run off of the soil surface, it will slow the rate at which that water runs off and slower water has less energy. And with less energy, we're going to get less sediment and nutrient transported. And it's it's more likely that slower moving water will then infiltrate later on um, as it moves downhill. So cover crops are, are key. Crops residues are all key in helping to build a soil that's more resilient to erosion, not only through the creation of those physical properties that allow for water infiltration, but also providing that physical barrier at the soil surface that help to slow down that raindrop energy and runoff energy. We'll be right back to the podcast, but first I want to thank our sponsor, GS3 Quality Seed, the distributor of high quality, trusted cover crop seed brands like Nitro Radish, KB Annual Ryegrass, Super B Facelia, and TNT Vetch. You can learn more about these cover crops and numerous other species at tiltpro.com, as well as find the seed dealer nearest you. That's tiltpro.com. And now back to the podcast. You've mentioned soil organic matter and how it relates to soil aggregates, but let's talk a little more specifically about those two topics. What role does soil organic matter play when it comes to creating those soil aggregates? So, and this is what's really fun is so we oftentimes, when we think about the soil system, it's extremely complex. So we like to talk in generalities about the impact of soil organic matter on soil aggregation. We know that organic matter humus can act as a glue, bringing those aggregates today together, stabilizing those aggregates against wet, dry and freeze thaw cycles. We know that that organic matter um, acts as a sponge, helping to hold water in the system. But we also need to think about that dynamic interplay between that organic matter and our soil microbial communities. So um, how does that organic matter feed those, those microbial communities? How does it foster um, their growth as well as their shelter so that using that organic matter as habitat? So the organic matter can stimulate those microbial activity, that microbial activity that then also enhances soil aggregation. So there's so many facets in way in which organic matter can influence aggregation, whether it be through the physical um, binding of those aggregates and the compression, bringing those soil aggregates together um, through the, the cementation, through the chemical processes of gluing it together, but also stimulating um, nutrient cycling, which fosters root growth and root growth we know will foster um, increased aggregation or that organic matter helping to feed that biological community, which then cycles nutrients fosters root growth that brings about aggregation or that also um, helps to benefit that microbial community, which produces the glues that green the aggregates together. So it's it's almost mind boggling um, the number of ways in which organic matter can play a role in and not only bringing those aggregates and forming those aggregates, but stabilizing those aggregates. And one thing I haven't mentioned so far is the importance of those stable aggregates, that aggregate that can withstand a wetting and drying cycle, an aggregate that will not fall apart when it gets wet, um, is really key in helping to reduce soil erosion and reducing the filling in of those pores, the crusting, that surface compaction that we will see um, through aggregate destruction um, during wet dry cycles. So, um, organic matter is is oftentimes the the linchpin, the the keystone of many of our biological, chemical, and physical properties in the soil. So, it's the it's the driving factor. It's the lifeblood of many of these processes. 
Fantastic. Well, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that bacterial life in the soil in just a minute. Um, but I wanted to ask you about um, how does applying manure um, influence soil health and, and that soil organic matter amounts? So this is another really complicated question because we know that manure, not all manure is created equally. So uh, up here in Northeast Wisconsin, I work a lot with, with liquid manures and slurry manures, which have tend to ha be mostly water uh, as and then have lower components of organic matter. They're going to have a much dramatic, a much different impact on soil organic matter levels and nutrient cycling than more solid manures. So our beef manures, our bed pack manures, compare all of these, these bovine manures to a swine manure or a chicken manure. So not all manures are created differently because they're going to have different organic matter components as well as different nutrient components. But if we want to talk in general, um, if we apply manures oftentimes, um, and we should be applying them according to the four R's, you know, right rate, right time, right place, right source, those are those manures are going to be adding a variety of organics, so easily decomposable organic, as well as more resistant organic materials. And so this will help to foster biological activity as well as as the aggregation and all the physical properties that we talked about, water holding capacity. Um, they'll also help with the cycling of they're going to have different components of nutrients and and be able to cycle those nutrients out during during different parts of the growing season. So many, many of the nutrients are about half in a dairy. I'm most familiar with dairy slurries. So we're looking at half or so of, for example, the nitrogen is going to be in the readily available ammonium form. The other half is going to be in the organic form. So when we look at, we get an immediately available nutrient source as well as a slow cycling nutrient source that can be utilized on later on in the season. So all of this is going to feed that biology. So if we're going to need those, those microorganisms to break that organic nutrient down and make it available to that growing crop. And so all of that is going to influence soil health. So when we think about microbes need very similar things as those plants. They need water. It's coming from manure. We need nutrients, which is coming from the manure. They oftentimes need those organics as an energy source. And so when we're applying manure at appropriate rates and appropriate times, we have seen, particularly in the research done up here in Northeast Wisconsin, we've seen that it stimulates microbial activity after application. And when it does, when it stimulates that microbial activity, we end up um, stimulating plant growth. And we know as we stimulate plant growth, we get better root growth, we get better biomass re return to the soil system, we're going to build more organic matter over time. And it really kind of jump starts that whole soil health building process. Um, so manures, I always wave my arms and say, I really do love manures as a fertilizer source. So when we manage them in a way um, that's appropriate, they are a, a huge component of building soil health over time. Fantastic. Well, I, I promised we would come back and talk a little bit more about the mi microbial life in the soil. So other than applying manure, what are some other things that growers can do to improve the health of the, the bacteria and the microbial life? that live in the soil. So there's many things. And so I always have to put out the, ca the caveat that I was trained as, a, as more of a pedologist. So when we think about when I went back to, when I went to college back in the 1990s, we were focused pretty heavily on chemistry and not as much on biology. So um, I've learned some over time, but I'm definitely not an expert um, in this realm. But when we look at, at how do we promote soil microbiology, um, it, is, it is very similar to all of the topics that we talk about when we talk about promoting soil health. So reducing tillage. So 
reducing that disturbance, that physical disturbance over time, you know, providing alternative carbon sources or energy sources. So whether that be manure or making sure that we have those root exudates 24 7, 365. So I think a lot of the research out there is showing us that the importance of having a root in that soil matrix in particular um, will help to benefit microbial activity over time because those roots are exuding exudates are exuding sugars that help to promote microbial activity. So when we think about maintaining a proper temperature of that soil, so we all, you know, the, the five factors of soil health. So making sure that our soil temperatures don't get too high during the growing season. So i.e. maintaining that residue and that canopy cover, those organisms um, are going to not like a lot of disturbance. So making sure that we are using our, our xenobiotics, move, using our crop protection chemicals and our fertilizers at appropriate rates and when they're, when they're needed. So making sure that we're crop scouting and using IPM, utilizing our nutrient management plans and timing this all. And so oftentimes I'm talking um, to farmers about making sure that we're, we're doing all of our cropping practices when the soil is at an appropriate moisture. So I see a lot of compaction, even in my, in my heavy sand soils up here. We have a lot of soil compaction out there on the landscape. And we know that compact soils have limited water and air, more limited water, air and water and air movement as compared to our non-compacted soils. And that's going to impact our microbial communities. So making sure that we are trafficking our soils when they're at the appropriate moisture, reducing that compaction um, and potential for compaction over time is going to benefit our microbial, our microbial communities. So there are so many different things that we can do to promote microbial activity. So if you just imagine that soil as their home and what do they need, right? They need water, they need air, they need water, they need shelter, they need food and, and tailoring our, our management practices to provide those basic necessities for them will help to promote those communities. So, so many different ways out there and everybody is attacking this this situation a little bit differently. So that's what's really fun working with producers up here in, in the northern part of the state is we do have manures and we do have forages out there in the landscape. So everybody tackles improving soil health a little bit differently. And, and over the last 10 years, we've seen a dramatic shift in, in the number of different types of crops going out uh, on the landscape, whether they be for cover crops, cash crops, or for forage crops. And we're seeing a lot of different and new technologies coming out here, such as low disturbance manure applicators that are helping to um, protect that habitat, protect that home for those microorganisms and build soil health over time. So there's just a wide variety of things that could be done. And, and I'm just stumbling around just a few examples of, of management practices that are being utilized. Okay, so um, earlier you were talking about how manure provides food sources for soil microbes. What are some alternative food sources for those soil microbes and, and how can growers provide those and why is that important? So when we think about providing those alternative food sources, um, we're looking at how do we get new carbon back into the system. And so whether that be composts, um, but oftentimes what we're looking at is, again, bringing that, that plant biomass and those living roots into the system 24, 7, 365. So how do I keep something growing um, within my fields? And so is that a change in a crop rotation? So, for example, for cash croppers, can I move from a, a corn soybean rotation to a corn soybean wheat cover crop rotation and really start to introduce 
roots into that system? Is it something as I move from in from a confinement to a grazing operation? So do I bring my those lands, those animals back out on the landscape? And do I have a per, now have a perennial forage out there that helps to bring carbon and feed the, that microbiology? Or is it, am I looking at new technologies to interseed cover crops into my cash crop and allow those interseeds then to, and choosing species in those interseeds that will then overwinter and provide that root, living root uh, over, the, over the winter period. So lots of different ways oftentimes to get those alternative food sources. So it may be amendments, as I said, about compost, manures, other organics, but oftentimes um, one of the easier ways in the, in the more widespread ways that we're providing that food is through providing crop roots. Okay. So um, in kind of switching gears here back to talking about cover crops, in uh, your conversations with growers, what have you seen on a soil health level that results in a, a slight lag in cash crop yields during those first few years that cover crops are being used? What's happening below the surface there? And that's that's a really interesting question, and and it's very it's highly farm dependent. So um, many of producers that are moving directly into in their first year into cover crop systems are seeing an improved tilth, right? So they talk to me about how you know planting and field operations go so smoothly because they don't need as much energy to move through the field. We are seeing others, however, are seeing some lag in yield, and and why is that? When we talk about changing up a microbial and a, a soil biological system. So there's there's that that changeover as we move from from one management practice to another and and the biology has to catch up with what is going on on the up above the soil surface to and catch up below the soil surface. So change to those those new root exudates, though that prevalence of new roots, rebuild that aggregation, rebuild that pore space, rebuild the capacity to hold water and nutrients and rebuild the ability to cycle nutrients over time. But oftentimes I when we look out there and sometimes I was going to say, and this is just anecdotal, is sometimes it's just the farmer themselves. So when we think about using new technologies, and I always think of cover crops as new technologies, there is a learning curve. And so that first year, um, oftentimes we don't do it right. So maybe I planted too heavy. Maybe I had the wrong cover crop species out there. Maybe I didn't terminate it early enough. Maybe I didn't manage it um, with nutrients appropriately to, to reduce that yield drag. Maybe I didn't have, if I were coming back in with corn or soybeans, maybe I didn't have that planter set up just right to plant into the residue um, that was remaining on the soil surface if I was planting green or if I terminated just before planting. So sometimes it's the, it's the soil itself that's catching up to the new system, but oftentimes it's, it's that learning curve as we're getting used to the new technology, as we're getting used to how to operate under this new system. And so sometimes it's just a little bit of both. It's a little soil and it's a, it's a little farmer challenge. Okay, great. Well, we are out of time for today. And I, I want to, before I let you go, Jamie, where can our listeners go for more information about cover crops and soil health uh, above and below the soil? So when we look at uh, great sources of information, talking to your local extension office, your land and water conservation office, or your NRCS office, I know that I and the Nutrient Pest Management Program work extensively with these three agencies. And so it's a, it's a great way to get that information that's reliable for your region that, that is applicable for your region. So when you're looking at um, 
there's also a lot of great information online. Just make sure that we're, we are searching through and finding information from reliable sources. And if we're looking at practical application, if they are prevalent in your area, looking to those local farmer-led watersheds or demonstration farm networks. So talking with the farmers who are, have successfully used these practices in your region and, and getting the tricks of the trade from them can go a long ways in, in making cover cropping and no-till and low disturbance manure application and whatever conservation practice we're interested in. It goes a long way in making them successful. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jamie. This has been great information. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank our sponsor, GS3 Quality Seed, the distributor of high quality, trusted cover crop seed brands. You can learn more about these cover crops and numerous other species at tiltpro.com, as well as find the seed dealer nearest you. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.